You're listening to a 58 Ember production. Good morning, Discovering Discos. Today we discover how Chick-fil-A could soon be forced to be open on Sundays, how Mark Zuckerberg is facing backlash over raising cows on beer and macadamia nuts, and what some people are calling the Mormon agriculture empire. Welcome to Discover Ag, where food meets pop culture. We're your host, Natalie Antara, millennial cattle rancher and dairy farmer. And every Thursday, we go beyond the headlines to cover what's new in the world of food. So good morning, discos. I hope you guys are staying warm. I hope by Thursday, this is Tuesday we're recording. I hope by Thursday, the storm, the cold snap has passed. I know everywhere's getting it right now. Everywhere. We had an interview scheduled for after this that just got canceled because someone's internet is down. But they're in like a southern state and they like fully acknowledge that southern states cannot handle cold weather. That's what I mean. I mean, you expect this from the Nebraska's of the world. You don't expect this from the Alabama's of the world and like the other places that are much more used to not dealing with these kind of temperatures right now. Yeah, it's cold here too. Like, just going to throw that out there. It's freezing. <laughs> You're like, Southern states' feelings matter too. (laughs) (laughs) They do. I mean, it's not negative seven like I think you posted, but it was like seven. So it's still cold. So we didn't even get it as bad as my family in Montana. Um, A couple days ago, Luke answered the phone. My dad was calling him. And he picked it up and he said, hey, good morning. How are you? They talk quite a bit. So it wasn't like out of the norm that my dad called Luke. But Luke said that the first thing my dad said after Luke asked him, you know, how are you doing? He said, not good. And Luke said the tone that my dad said it in, Luke honestly thought someone had passed. Like he thought my dad was calling to tell us like someone in the family has been in an accident, like something really tragic happened. They were negative 40 reading it at like the actual scale. Like oh, uh, we've been negative too, God. but it's like negative feels like negative 30 or like negative with like a wind chill it puts you there. They were reading at negative 40 and my family's calving. And so it's just, I said a bunch of prayers for them. And I know there's so many people tuning in that can relate to those exact sentiments that like there are places that are cold and then there are places that are cold. And so our hearts do just go out to every single person, whether you're in agriculture or not, whether, you know, you're used to it or not. Like it is, it is just not a fun thing to be exposed to. So we're definitely thinking of everyone this week. On a more positive note, you and I get to see each other this week. I know in just a couple days, it's like, I can't believe it's here. We're headed to Utah. We're going to Salt Lake City for the American Farm Bureau Annual Convention. And I'm so excited. I was Googling like all about Salt Lake City yesterday. I was saying we're going to more cold weather is my frame of thought right now, which I need to get in a better <laughs> frame of mind. But you're right. It will be really exciting. Last year we're in Puerto Rico. So I think that's just what's rubbing me wrong is that like right now I could really use an escape to, you know, some tropical warm weather. But American Farm Bureau is one of the most fun ways to kick off the new year. I'm very excited for the convention. I'm very excited to see everyone. I'm excited for our live recording. And we get to be on panels this year, too. So I'm excited for that added um, value as well. Yeah, we're going to be kind of all over the place over at American Farm Bureau. I'm not going to lie. My Google Home is showing me pictures from last year in Puerto Rico. And that is not helping things. Like, I'm like, can you tone down the beach pictures right now, knowing I'm headed to Utah? I was also in Utah last week and had kind of like a terrible travel day if you followed my stories and like hit a winter storm. So I'm just like really hoping this winter storm has passed by the time we are headed to Utah and then maybe we'll get like a glimmer of like a little bit better weather. But um, yeah, I'm excited to be on panels. We're taking over also Case IH Instagram stories while we're there. So you can go to their Instagram page and see us and 
I'm just, yeah, I'm really looking forward to being in Salt Lake. Speaking of Case IH, we want to thank our sponsor, Case IH. Case IH has solutions for every challenge, equipment for every farm. Case IH is built by farmers. Yes. And one thing before we dive into today's articles, um, I do want to remind you guys, if you missed it, we dropped a hot off the press, hot topic alert this week on Tuesday. We covered um, much to your guys' request, our thoughts and opinions on the Netflix show, You Are What You Eat. So you can scroll back, listen to that if you want to. Um, it was a good conversation. I actually listened to it this morning and I, and I enjoyed it. So, all right, diving into the first article to discover this week, headline Chick-fil-A could soon open on Sundays. The famously closed on Sundays chicken sandwich fast food chain could soon be required to fire up the fryers and serve hungry travelers in some location thanks to a New York State Assembly bill known as the Rest Stop Restaurant Act that would require food and beverage companies to be open seven days a week. Reading this article, like that very first paragraph you just read, my first comment is like, why? Like, why do you care if restaurants are closed on Sundays? But the entire like point of this is that it is like a traveler's like throughway, and it is for people traveling. One of the busiest travel days is on Sunday. And there is like questions about like tax dollars being behind this throughway and all sorts of things. And so people feel like every single restaurant should be opened on Sundays while they're traveling. Yeah. So getting into the specifics of the law, it affects, like you said, what's called this quote unquote throughway. And for anyone that is a non Big Apple living listener, I guess the throughway is a 570 mile super highway that connects New York's principal cities, rural areas and tourist destinations. So needless to say, there's going to be probably a lot of travel on that throughway. There are 27 service areas And those are the service areas they're talking about putting into this law an effect that you have to be open essentially for anyone traveling on the road. I thought there was one quote that was really good that said that um, considering this is like a traveler's area, that a restaurant that's closed on Sunday is just not appropriate for this location. And I actually thought that maybe that was like a better point of this. Like instead of passing a law that says you have to be open, maybe it's just like you can't be in this location if you're closed on Sundays. Well, I think that's what they're saying. Well, no, this would be like you Chick-fil-A would have to be open. Like, I feel like there's like two ways to look at it. Like Chick-fil-A would be in the throughway. It would have to be open. Instead, it's like only have restaurants that are already open on Sundays. Like Chick-fil-A just wouldn't have a location there. Does that make sense? It does make sense. So a couple of things about that. First, I think we should say the article is actually a little bit of clickbait because I did read in a couple different places that the new ruling will only apply to all future contracts. So meaning for now, at least, that it won't apply to the Chick-fil-A's that are in any of those rest stops. Um, I think there's about seven of them. And so, like you said, maybe it does make sense going forward that everyone knows now, like you can't put a restaurant in there unless you plan to be open seven days a week. I think what also needs to be said before maybe we get into a little bit more of like our thoughts and opinions, because I think actually I really might disagree with you on this. Um, A little key background on Chick-fil-A and why this is like there's like hubbub, I guess, around them. In 1946, the founder, Truett Cathy, instituted this Sunday closure rule at his restaurant. So all Chick-fil-A's, if you've never eaten there, you're not familiar with them, they are closed on Sundays. It remains that way to date in order to allow employees to, in his words, quote, set aside one day to rest 
enjoy time with their families and loved ones and or worship if they choose. So he is a conservative Christian, as is his family and like the now CEOs running it. Um, And historically, they have gotten like a lot of, I guess, like ire from lawmakers and just the general public over a lot of their stances, beliefs and causes they support. So initially, when I read this article, I thought this was very, very political because you said you liked the quote that they said. That quote actually sent me over the edge. I found it so irritating the way they said the law states restaurants at the service area should maximally benefit the public and allowing them to go unused for one day out of the week is a, quote, disservice and unnecessary inconvenience to travelers who rely on those service areas. And I just thought, are you freaking kidding me? Like, drive through rural America. We don't have shit for miles. And we figured out, like, who cares if Chick-fil-A is closed on Sunday? Like, it made me really upset. Okay, lots of things. Few things. This was definitely a clickbait headline because it made it seem like it was going to be open in, like, multiple states, multiple locations. Not this single throughway. Also, one of the reasons that Kathy, the original CEO, wanted to be closed is because he had worked seven days a week in restaurants that were open 24 hours a day and just like really impacted him on how he felt about the service industry. Now, back to your final point. I don't think we disagree. I just don't think actually my point of why I thought like the quote inappropriate, like for that location was because I don't think businesses should be forced to be open on Sundays. Like they should not have to do that. So like if that is like a make or break deal, then like I think if I was Chick-fil-A, I'd be like, then we're just not putting locations in that spot. I think that was more my point. Um, There was also a quote that kind of sent me, actually. It was not only should it be open on Sundays, but they mentioned Christmas Eve as well. And I was like, okay, lots of restaurants besides Chick-fil-A are closed on Christmas Eve and Christmas. And I will say as a person, one time my sister, her appendix ruptured on Thanksgiving Day, and we ended up spending our Thanksgiving Day in Lubbock with my sister the girls were with me and i remember like googling like restaurants that are open on thanksgiving and i couldn't find one and guess what it wasn't the end of the world i figured it out it was okay we went to a vending machine we like found something in the hospital and it's just like i don't know i just don't think restaurants should be forced to be open for like convenience sake you totally reminded me of something i forgot about which no surprise i forget about literally every memory in my life but um we were driving back from montana during christmas it was shortly after jax was born so he was either one and a half or two and a half and we got stuck stranded in wyoming uh, it was a storm obviously december i don't know why we thought we could drive but we got stranded in i think maybe gillette wyoming on Christmas Day because my family celebrates everything Christmas Eve and we wanted to get back and catch Luke's family. So I'm pretty sure we were driving back Christmas Day. We could not find anywhere but one restaurant. It was a Chinese restaurant. Thank the Lord. We were in our hotel eating Chinese on Christmas Day. I think I was crying. But I remember Luke going in there and saying, oh, my gosh, thank you that you guys are open, you know, and they're like, we don't celebrate Christmas or something. But to your point, like it wasn't the end of the world. And to all the other families that do celebrate and do want time off, like, I just don't know if they should be forced to be open for my like convenience or desires, I guess. Yeah. So one of the fun facts about Chick-fil-A actually that I found fascinating is they actually lose about $1 billion in sales every year by being closed on Sundays. And I will just say like kudos to 
Chick-fil-A for committing to being closed no matter what, like the cost is and like the pressure from, as you said, like politicians, states, all of these things and like financial like decisions. Like that's a huge commitment to give your employees off on Sunday and still lose a billion dollars. Well, and like you said, going back to the original reason, like, you know, he had said that he had spent too much time basically as a slave to the restaurant hours. I wonder what Chick-fil-A's employee satisfaction rates are versus other restaurant employees, you know, how they would rate their their life, their lifestyle. Um, I mean, you, you guys had a restaurant when you were younger. I think most people know like food service industry is very, very taxing. Uh, it's like a labor of love, right? And so I would be very curious if the way off that they're losing financially, like if they have less employee turnover, like the struggles, maybe they don't face those that a lot of other, you know, restaurants do because they're willing to make that trade off of like, we're going to value a little bit of our employees time better. I would be curious about that too. I actually knew a girl who worked at Hobby Lobby who's also closed on Sundays because of like religious beliefs. And she said like, it's worth it getting like, maybe I could find a job that would pay a little bit more. But she was like, it's worth just knowing I always have that Sunday off. And that like, if I were to take PTO on Saturday or Monday, like I can make it work with my husband's schedule or whatever. So I would be curious about that with Chick-fil-A too. Another thing that I found interesting with Chick-fil-A is instead of saying you're welcome, they always say my pleasure. And um, the CEO, Kathy, he actually borrowed that phrase from the Ritz Carlton. Apparently that's what Ritz Carlton say to you when you oh. do things. And so I thought that was just really interesting of like where he picked up on different like little pieces that he took with him into his business. I would love to hear how I built this on him. I'll never forget. I listened to the owner, founder, CEO of Culver's on how I built this. And it was so fascinating. Ooh, it was a really good story. I would love to hear this. Um, Trick Kathy sounds like very interesting. Mm-hmm. I would love to hear his story. I know you're a McDonald's girly, but I am very curious. Do you like Chick-fil-A? I love Chick-fil-A. We don't have one in our town. Otherwise, it would definitely like compete with my um, McDonald's habit. I will say that one of the inconveniences, this is my like Chick-fil-A inconvenience, is every time I fly through Love Field, they have a Chick-fil-A. And I'm always like, yes, I'm going to get Chick-fil-A in the airport. I'm so excited. And I always fly on Sundays. And every time I just walk in, like I feel like when you're traveling, sometimes you just don't know what day it is. And so you're like, I walk in and then I'm like, oh, yeah, it is Sunday. Dang it. They're closed. Um, but no, I'm a big Chick-fil-A fan. I was going to ask you what you order. So I'll say what I order first, and then I want to know what you order. I love the chicken strips because I'm a small child. That's who I am. Waffle fries, cookies and cream milkshake. I love their sriracha sauce. That's my favorite. So to no surprise, I hadn't had Chick-fil-A until a year ago what? for the very first time. Or two years. Are you yeah, okay? or two years ago was the very well? first time. Like What? There was not a Chick-fil-A in Bozeman where I, I grew up. I mean, like the bigger, I didn't grow up in Bozeman. It was the bigger town adjacent to us. There was not a Chick-fil-A there. There was not a Chick-fil-A where I went to college. Um, I went to college at WCU. Shout out to the Cougs. There wasn't one there. There wasn't one in Missoula. Um, that's where I went to pharmacy school. And then, yeah, I moved to a smaller community in Montana after that. There definitely wasn't a Chick-fil-A there. And I guess I never just like sought it out when I was traveling, but shout out to uh, Jenner Auctioner. She is the co-host of Beyond the Crops with MP SAS. And I was traveling somewhere with Jenna. So that's why I think it was maybe two years ago when we were... It might have been when we were going to Nashville for a rural rooted retreat. Jenna was like, you have... Like, we have to get Chick-fil-A. Let's get Chick-fil-A. And I was like, okay. And I liked it. That's good. Like, I'll eat it now if I'm in, traveling. And there's like... I usually 
try and source something else besides a fast food. But if there isn't, I'll look for a Chick-fil-A. Like I enjoyed it, but I, I definitely don't have a go-to. I probably couldn't even name the menu to you. Like chicken, I guess. You would, that's it. <laughs> you would love their salads. They have really good salads and you can get like a grilled chicken on top. And I could see you liking that. Like the garden salad's really good. A hack from my mom that I have to share. If you like lemon, you can get their lemonade, but you can get the diet version. And apparently it's, you know, quote unquote, lower calories. Um, and apparently it's amazing if you like lemonade. So the diet, it's the diet mm. lemonade frosty. So it's like a, like a lemon milkshake. So that's worth noting. Mm. All right. Thank you, Winnie. Thank you, Winnie. All right. Before Natalie gives us our next headline, we want to thank our sponsor, Armra. Armra is a colostrum. It contains all the nutrients we need to thrive. It is so good for your gut, your hair, your skin, and your nails. If you have been listening to this podcast, you know how much Natalie and I love it. We're stands for it. Uh, colostrum is a proprietary concentration of bovine colostrum that harnesses over 400 living bioactive nutrients that rebuild the barriers of your body and fuel cellular health for a host of research-backed health benefits. We have been getting a lot of questions about Armour, so I want to answer a couple of them. The first one is flavors. Uh, we love the blood orange, but we are actually going to be trying a new flavor, and we will let you guys know ASAP what we think of it. I personally do the unflavored because, as you know, if you follow me on stories, I just shoot it back every single day. Natalie, what is your favorite flavor? So I'll do either or because I mix it in with my better greens. And so honestly, the flavors mass like I have had the blood orange and I feel like it does add like a little bit of like a zing or a little bit more fruity flavor to my better greens. But I also just do the unflavored um, as well. Another question we're getting is about where it is sourced. That has been a big topic of conversation. So fun fact about dairies is dairy cows actually produce too much colostrum for their calves. So Armra sources the excess colostrum. So you are not taking any colostrum away from any calves or anything like that is the excess. Um, we actually on our dairy farm sell our excess colostrum as well. So it is super common and they source from grass fed calves. Um, and so today we have worked out a special offer for you guys. You guys can receive 15% off your first order if you enter code DISCOVER. Uh, you can go to tryarmra.com slash discover or use the code DISCOVER to get that 15% off or just click the link in our show notes. And you guys, you guys, Luke is coming down with a man cold and oh, I no. have held strong. Prayers I know. For you. I know. Prayers. Thank you. And the kids have held strong as well because I also give them um, Armora too. So I'll be very interested to see if Tad is the next one in the household to become victim to this because him and Luke both do not do Armora. And I think if everyone else stays healthy in the house, I will probably have convinced Luke and Tad to start taking it too. So maybe something good will come out of this, you know, man cold that is looming in the house. All right, diving into our second article to discover this week, headline Mark Zuckerberg facing backlash over raising cows on beer and macadamia nuts on his Hawaii ranch. The Facebook founder has entered the beef industry chat. He announced on an Instagram post this week that he and his family will be raising Wagyu and Angus cows on their multi-million dollar compound in Kauai, Hawaii. So this actually stemmed from an IG post, not any just IG post, but his own Zuckerberg's IG post, um, which we can read in a second. The caption's a little bit interesting, but I'm curious. Did you see the actual post or like read what he wrote? Yeah, that's I actually um, saw the Instagram post and that's when I went and searched it and threw it into our Trello board is because I, I don't know. I feel like someone I don't follow him, so I don't know how I saw it. I don't know if it came up in my for you page. Can't remember that. Um, but definitely that's where I saw this and people were popping off in the comments like it is a hot topic on his page. I know. America is running wild with this one. Uh, we can do a second. I'll read his Instagram post. 
Quote, started raising cattle at Kualo Ranch on Kauai, and my goal is to create some of the highest quality beef in the world. The cattle are Wagyu and Angus, and they'll grow up eating macadamia meal and drinking beer that we grow and produce here on the ranch. We want the whole process to be local and vertically integrated. Each cow eats 5,000 to 10,000 pounds of food each year, so that's a lot of acres of macadamia trees. My daughters help plant the mac trees and take care of our different animals. We're still early in the journey, and it's fun improving on it in every season. Of all my projects, this is the most delicious, end quote. Yeah, this entire estate is supposed to be self-sufficient. It reportedly has like a massive water tank, a pump system, and like, quote unquote, food grown locally. The whole local thing was good. So I think my question for you that I'm curious is, is ask like a cattle rancher, do you feel like his post was like a little condescending? Like, I'm doing it right. Like, I'm going to be producing good beef like everyone else isn't? Or were you like on the flip side of like, Yay, that's so cool. That's cool that he's getting into cattle ranching. Like, I'm excited about it. Or maybe somewhere in the middle. Because I saw both sentiments online from cattle ranchers. And so I'm really curious what camp you kind of fall into. I am so indifferent. (laughs) I am neither. I was not offended at all by the post. I didn't feel like he was being condescending or saying like, he's going to ranch differently than I ranch and the way he ranches is better, which we'll get into kind of the specifics of why he said beer and macadamia. And on the flip hand side, I was also not super intrigued. Like I am not, my head is not turned. I am not so curious. I think the reason why I'm kind of indifferent right now is because I couldn't find any facts on the size of the ranch as far as like animals they have, a number of animals, like goals of the ranch. I mean, there's a lot of stats out there about like how much it costs and like acre size. But I couldn't find how many cattle he's running, like five cows versus 50 cows versus 500 cows is a very big difference. And so I think that's what will say my opinion. Like if he's just raising five cows, I am not going to be curious at all. If he's getting into like production ag numbers, then I think I'll actually be peaked and very curious to like follow along with his journey. Yeah, definitely no numbers about his cows, but you mentioned the cost of the project. So Mark started buying uh, Hawaiian land in a series of deals back in 2014 uh, for a total of $170 million. He has put a mil- uh, sorry. Did I say that right? Yeah, 170 million. And he has put 100 million uh, into construction and permitting. So the whole project is estimated to cost 270 million, making it one of the most expensive properties in the entire world. I don't think he's paying that mortgage with um, a 50 cow calf ranch. Just <laughs> throwing that out there. <laughs> no. no, he's paying it with all of us that have a slave to him. with the IG posts we're posting out of this, is how he's paying for it. <laughs> Okay, so diving into the maybe sentiments around this from people, because like you said, people have a lot to say on the post. It was almost 50-50. I do feel like there's a lot of angry people, like our normal conversations, you know, about the environment, about eating meat. There, I saw a lot of like, um, oh, the elite get to eat meat and we have to eat bugs kind of conversation. So there's everything there that were kind of angered. And then I feel like there were people who were defending him. It was just kind of a whole mess. I didn't feel like one emotion stood out more that to me than the so other. weird that you say that because mine was all animal activists. And so I'm wondering like what, oh. how Instagram decides which comments go to the top for which people. Because I was like, I feel like you had said to me like, oh, some of the comments were positive. So I was like scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And besides Paul Saladino's, like the carnivore MD, I could not find a single positive one. So that's crazy. 
I also read it on Twitter too, I think. So it might be different platforms. Mm. And I will say when you get into Instagram, you have to click into the first negative comment to see the conversations below it. Because a lot of times the first comment will be like an activist comment. And then the thread below it, like the 27 replies are actually people that are saying like, no, that's wrong. And like kind of defending it. So maybe there aren't as many like first responses that are positive or supportive. But I felt like there was a lot of people coming to like almost... um interact with the negative comments to defend on his behalf or the behalf of like the industry, I guess. I will say what stood out to me was the headlines around the beer. There were so many people running wild with like drunk cows, beer drinking cattle. Like one of the titles is Mark Zuckerberg is embarking on his most delicious endeavor yet, raising beer drinking cattle. And that is like not what is going on here. Again, like click bake titles. I think a lot of people, I saw it in the comments, even people thinking that this is like, a harebrained, wild thing he's doing, like being super inventive. And I hate to break it to everyone, but the Facebook genius is actually just like following the status quo when it comes to feeding cattle byproducts. He's using byproducts. That's all he's using. And we can kind of get into that more. I also love how he spun it as like such a sustainability story, which is like kind of like a hill I always like die on that I'm like, we don't talk enough about how cool it is that our cattle eat byproducts and like how sustainable that is. So like the macadamia nuts, it's like the macadamia nut meal. So the leftover from producing macadamia nuts, the leftover from producing beer, he's going to feed his cattle. Like literally not even a headline. That's what most cattle ranchers, dairy farmers, people that raise cattle across the country do is feed byproducts that are local to them. And that is exactly the case here. Yes. So exactly what you said. He is feeding what people will call spent grain or brewer's grain. I think there's probably other names for it. But it is exactly like my intelligent co-host said, the leftover, the byproduct of making beer. It's the same process, actually, I believe it's the same process um, as getting distiller's grains, which is what's left over from the ethanol industry. And that's what we do here as a very, very common feed source for cattle in the Midwest. And I am sure in other places beyond the Midwest. Um, So it's not... The way he spun it and the way the headlines are spinning it, as we've said multiple times now, makes it seem in- inventive or unique. And it's not like, you know, you guys feed the cotton seeds in your area as a byproduct. Like Florida can seed citrus pulp and use the leftover byproducts from that industry. You know, California does almond holes. We've talked about this. And like you said, one of the cool things is that maybe out of this, there will become more awareness around how byproducts can be used like as part of our sustainability story and are a part of our sustainability story. I mean, we have talked about the stats and the quotes before of how those byproducts being fed to cattle keep those byproducts, that waste essentially, because we can't eat it as humans. So it goes to landfills. So what cattle do is they upcycle that into the protein. And in turn, they're like taking leftover waste, which we hate calling it that, you know, because it makes it sound like we're feeding our animals something bad, but we're not because it's, you know, super high in protein and like all the the nutrients cattle need, we're keeping out of landfills and we're turning into more food for ourselves. So I don't know, maybe people will start to like get that connection out of Zuckerberg's story. I hope so. That would be like a positive that comes out of this. So kind of the rabbit hole I actually went down with this is like people are also freaking out about the underground bunker. I don't know if you saw this. That's another like really hot topic. So a little bit about like the houses, I guess. It all of the buildings put together, there's going to be 30 bedrooms, 30 bathrooms, 11 tree houses. They'll all be joined together by a series of ropes and bridges. Um and so guests will not have to like get out of the tree houses in order to like move from house to house. But then underneath so it's two main mansions, but underneath the mansion, they will be joined by underground con- tunnels, which connects a 5,000 square foot bunker with living space, mechanical room, escape hatch, all sorts of things. 
And I should mention that the two mansions are almost 60,000 square feet. So, you know, the bunker is holy in comparison. Crap. That is so big. So big. So big. Crazy. You would lose your family. I would get lost. I'd get lost. I know. How many kids does he have? Like, good luck finding them. I don't know what to tell you. In tree houses, too, 11 tree houses, my kids would be like, they would become the next, like, woman Tarzan, I swear. All I could envision was Swiss Family Robinson. I loved watching that show growing up and, like, the tree houses. We just finished reading that with Guinevere. Oh, I loved it so much. Um but yeah, it's funny you mentioned like his kids because that is the weird little side hole I went down was actually his wife. I have never in my life given two thoughts about Mark Zuckerberg's wife or his kids. But then I was reading this article and I like stumbled into her IG and I just, could you imagine being his wife or like having Mark Zuckerberg be your dad? That would be so weird. Do you know how their first date went? Yeah, they met at a party. No, so they met at a party, but their actual like first official date, he was like, hey, can we uh, like go on this date? And we need to do it like sooner rather than later. And it was because he was about to get thrown out of college. And so he didn't tell her that. And so they went on this date like before he got expelled or thought he was going to get expelled or went before the board or whatever. But he was like, no, we have to go on this date like tomorrow because I may not be here next week. That is wild. I knew that they had met before he started Facebook. So I want like her viewpoint, like through her eyes of this whole story of social media, like what a crazy seat to have to be her, you know? You know, another crazy thing that I saw, I've been thinking about how much like I put my kids on social media and he blocks out his kids face on social media. Oh, 100%. I totally would. I mean, I have transitioned to like shifting my kids less. And that is coming from like the, the small amount of followers I have. I can't even imagine. I actually think about that a lot. People who are extremely famous and show their kids. I mean, not to like point the parenting finger because that's the last thing I ever like to do is give like parenting advice when it's especially unsolicited. But it does kind of blow my mind. People who have really big followings are out in the public, like could be easily found all those things and they show their kids faces. Back to the bunker. I'm so fascinated by this bunker. I am not fascinated at all, but I'll hang on for this bunker ride. Okay, thank you. Thank you for coming on this journey down underground with me to 5,000 square feet of paradise under paradise, apparently. But no, it's a nuclear bunker. So people are just like very conspiracy theory going on of like why he's preparing for like a nuclear attack and like what he thinks the future of the world will be. So those comments section is also quite um, interesting. The last thing I'll have to say about this is some of the island's residents are not very pleased with this. Apparently there's a six foot wall going around the ranch. And so you no longer have ocean views. If you are in the neighborhood, apparently there's a lot of traffic. So people are not thrilled about Mark Zuckerberg as their next door neighbor. Well, so that's the other thing I thought was interesting because like you said, a lot of the statements right now from people on the island are geared towards more of like the construction of it. Like I wanted to hear from agriculture. I wanted to hear from other producers. Like I was curious about how people within the industry felt about him, you know, quote unquote, entering the industry. Um, So I'll I'll be interested to see if that like those statements or those um, words come out in their defense. There was a soundbite from Zuck's representative. She said, quote, Mark and Priscilla valued their time, their family spends at the Koala Ranch and in the local community and are committed to preserving the ranch's natural beauty. Under their care, less than 1% of the overall land is developed with the vast majority dedicated to farming, ranching, conservation, open spaces, and wildlife preservation. So 
sounds like they maybe have the right intentions of understanding, you know, about like land management and stewardship, which I think is the other really curious thing to me. Again, I just so curious about how he'll scale this because if it is bigger, I'm interested to see like who he'll bring on, like the employees who helps managing it, like running it. Like I don't really imagine Zuck being super hands-on. So I am curious about like what that ranch land management position would be like. Listen, I tell Tad all the time that he should do a ranch uh, internship in Hawaii because while you may not think of the beef industry in Hawaii, they do have ranches there. They do have cattle. And I feel like that would be a phenomenal place as a college student (laughs) to go and do an internship. I knew a guy who did an internship on uh, a cattle ranch and a dairy in Hawaii. And speaking of dairy, I want to get my like dairy fact in. I actually Google earthed the ranch where I was at. And it was so crazy. Right next door is a dairy. So I wonder if uh, Zuckerberg will expand his operation, take on the dairy, and maybe we'll be, you know, getting like Facebook creamery or something like that. I was going to say, I know that last week Dan was looking for dairies in Florida, but I saw some ranches were for sale in Hawaii and I thought maybe we could just pick up and move Discover Ag there if we buy a ranch and you buy a dairy. If there ever was a time to get him on board, it is this cold snap right now. (laughs) Like call him today and he will sign the paperwork. I guarantee it. All right. We want to thank another sponsor. Today, we are thanking Toops & Co., our favorite beef tallow brand for all of our skincare needs. What I love about Toops & Co., it is so far beyond just tallow. They have dry shampoo, deodorant, um, serums, all sorts of stuff. Uh, Toops & Co. is an entire skincare and makeup lineup. It is 100% natural and uses organic ingredients like grass-fed tallow. They go above and beyond to source organic products made in the United States and support small family-owned farms who are sustainable, fair trade, transparent, and ethical. Toops & Co. is a husband and wife team that believes it's not good enough for you until it's good enough for their own family. Uh, so one of the things I know Natalie just ordered is the skincare starter kit, and it has a ton of great stuff. So it's a great place to start. It has the hobo uh, glow serum that I love. It has the resurfacing mask that I love. So I'm curious, Natalie, when you get that, what you think of it. You guys, Toops & Co. has like taken over <laughs> my bathroom. Over. I am slowly just swapping out items as I go. I think I have their shampoo. I have their deodorant. Um, Most of my makeup is now Toops & Co. Like, I'm not joking when I say they are slowly invading my entire beauty regimen. So code discover, check them out. We're actually going to have the founder, Emily, on for an interview too. So if you guys have questions that you're curious about tallow, let us know. We can get them in for the interview. Before we dive into our last article, I also want to say thank you to a disco. Kels Shield. She left a review last week titled Ag Giggly Squad. After I discovered the podcast, I quickly loved this duo. Ag plus Giggly Squad equals the Discover Ag Girlies. I can't ask for much more. This is a smart, funny podcast that offers interesting perspectives on various parts of agriculture in the world and a whole lot more. I thoroughly enjoy listening to these two. It's like sitting down with some girlfriends. Oh my gosh, I love that. I love Giggly Squad. I'm like totally, oh, I can't believe you guys compared us to Giggly Squad. I love that for us. We are your girlfriends, Kel Shields. Uh, Make sure you DM us on Discover Ag so that we can send you a Discover sticker. And if you are not Kel Shields and you want a sticker of your own, take a second to leave a review after this episode. We will love you immensely as your words. um, And just you simply sharing an episode helps us grow and gets more people discovering. All right, diving into our third and final topic to discover headline Mormon Church purchases 370,000 acres of Nebraska farmland, now nation's largest. The Mormon Church has sparked a fierce backlash from local farmers after snapping up around 370,000 acres of prime ranch land in Nebraska, with the Utah-based religion now owning at least 2 billion of agriculture terrain across the country. 
So this article is pretty self-explanatory, you guys. The Mormon church is buying farmland, period. End of story. Like they have done so for years and they will probably continue to do so for years. And some people don't like that, just like they don't like Zuckerberg ranching either. Yeah. And it's not just Nebraska. They own farmland all over the whole country, all over the whole world. So we talk a lot about who owns farmland on this podcast. Like it's a reoccurring theme that comes up in the news. We've talked about China, Bill Gates, you know, um, Saudi Arabia. But a fun fact, the Mormon church owns more farmland than China and Gates combined. Yes, the Mormon owns, um, it's just under 1 million. The article uh, quoted them knocking at 859,000 acres. To put it in perspective, Bill Gates is 270,000 acres and China is 380,000 acres. So quite a bit of a difference. I get, again, people will then, you know, bring into the concerns behind, you know, maybe Bill Gates and China owning for agenda, purpose, mentality, etc. So there could be a difference there. I know. But do you think there is like, do you think there's I mean, I'm sure there's an agenda behind the Mormon church, too. Like, I'm sure there's strategy like they're a business, essentially. Like, I'm sure there is some reason why. I mean, they have bought more farmland than anyone else in Nebraska over the past five years. Like, there's got to be a reason for it. Yeah, I guess. I don't know why I give them a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. Um, So their nonprofit that they're buying this up under is called Farmland Reserve. And they have put out multiple quotes, which again, obviously, it's like a soundbite for public intention. But they say the land purchases are an investment to generate long term value to support the church's religious, charitable and humanitarian good works. Um, They have, quote, felt that good farms over a long period represent a safe investment where the assets of the church may be preserved and enhanced. I remember saying this when we talked about the athletes in Iowa that were buying farmland. I don't think you can knock people for recognizing and understanding and knowing that land is one of um, like the best investments you can make, right? If you have money, land is a good thing. Like it's not, you're not going to be losing money by doing land investments. And so I don't think we can fault people for understanding that. And that's not to say that that isn't why, you know, Bill Gates is buying is because he understands it's like a land investment. I don't know. Maybe I've just like, bought into too many conspiracy headlines when it comes to like Bill Gates, for example. Well, then maybe let's go down some conspiracy headlines on the Mormon side and maybe you will change your thoughts or opinions (laughs) on this. So some of its own members have sued the church, accusing it of misusing hundreds of thousands of dollars in donations. Um, And so misusing its vast reserves, basically. You have to remember this is like a tax exempt. As you said, it's a religious organization. And so they do not have to publicly report their income or assets. And so there is there is some controversy around what they're spending their money on and like being sued from either people within the church or without. Actually, I think like one of the larger, I think it's the wealthiest person in Utah recently like left the church over disagreements with them. And so there there's definitely some controversy there. So the taxes is interesting that you brought that up because that is one of the things I'm sorry, Discos, I apologize. I did not look into it. I'm just, your girls had a long week. I'm tired. I didn't have the energy to go down the rabbit hole of like whether the Mormon church pays taxes or not. But I do feel like I read something that alluded to the fact that they are not exempt from like the real estate or the land tax portions. Mm, that makes um, sense. I feel like it got, if, I feel like it got confusing for me, but that is one area that if I was going to like, you know, take a stance on this and like make a, you know, a very official statement or have to take sides or whatever, that is one of the areas I would dive into and do my most personal research on is figure out what taxes looks like them for paying. Because I do think there's a big difference if they're getting all that farmland and they're not having to pay the same amount of taxes or that tax structure looks different or like whatever that is when it comes to taxes versus if like Luke and I buy it and own it. Like that seems very unfair to me if it is different. 
Yeah. And one of the issues too for local people is like the land grab is kind of a driving up prices. And so if they're bidding against local farmers and ranchers, local farmers and ranchers have no way of being able to compete with the Mormon church. The Mormon church is the second wealthiest religious organization in the world. Okay, so I'm really glad you brought that up because that is like one of the driving arguments behind why people are so upset about this is because like you said, people will say like land grabbing, competition, like the pocketbooks of farmers can't compete with, you know, the Mormon church or any large organization for that, right? Like, and I remember talking about this too with you on the podcast. I can't remember what episode, but we were looking into different states who try and outlaw that, who will have laws against like certain corporations being able to buy farmland and whatnot because it can drive up those land prices. I will say, again, just playing a little bit of a devil's advocate, that land that they just recently bought in Nebraska, it's not like it went on market for one day and the Mormon church like snapped it up and no one else got to put a bid in for it. That land had been listed for a very long time. So I think if we're going to get into that conversation of like the cost of land, which we know super capital intensive, like not everyone is just scooping up land left and right. We have to look at like how we're pricing it, right? If we as America really care about farmers and ranchers, like true farmers and ranchers, true individuals owning the the farmland and keeping it that way, like we're going to have to look at how we're pricing it then because it's not the church's fault or any organization's fault. Like they're not setting the prices. They they can buy it. We can't. Like that that's pretty simple. It's pretty black and white. And so I think there needs to be like a little bit of maybe just an assessment around like, well, we're not going to be able to buy it anyway. Like it's not their fault that they can buy it and, and purchased it. I think that's really, really good perspective. And I'm sure the farmer that and rancher that was selling it was thrilled that someone came in and bought it if it had been on the market for a really long time. So like, I do think with all of these headlines, I feel like that's something we've been talking about, like the clickbait, like you, it, they're not giving you always like the full picture of how things are going. So I, I appreciate that research. Another thing on that note that I'll add that I think it's left out and it was highlighted a little bit in this article But I think I would have a very different opinion about the Mormon church owning the farmland if they weren't good stewards of the land. But they actually come in and like we have people that we know that are on the Rex Ranch, which is the um, ranch here in Nebraska. It's called the Rex Ranch. Um, Maintained ran phenomenally. Um, I read things about the Florida Ranch that they were, you know, I think they got an award for something or maybe it was the Utah uh, Ranch they have that got an award. Like they are typically associated being very forward thinking when it comes to like sustainable and regenerative ag. Like they are getting people in there that are part of our industry that are managing it, running it like they're making really good choices, you know, whether it's land stewardship or animal husbandry. Like I think the Mormon owned land is a benefit to the industry from that standpoint. Like they're not out there degrading it or leaving it deserted or like mismanaging it. And I think that's like a really big positive too. You mentioned Florida. Some fun facts about the Mormon church that I want to bring in is they are the largest landowner in Florida. They own about $2 billion of agriculture land across the country. And then this was a fun little fact that I could not like get too much details about it, but apparently it is believed that the Mormon church is the largest producer of nuts in California. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I didn't know they were worldwide, but I definitely knew they were uh, like sprinkled across the nation because I remember listening to the podcast. I forget the name of it, but it was talking about that scandal in uh, is it Oregon or Washington. I always forget the Cody Easterday scandal with the large uh, beef industry that um, like swindled, I think it was Tyson or something. And when they had to go bankrupt and list that, 
I'm pretty sure it was the Mormon church who came in and bought that. And that was really hotly debated because it is by the Columbia River, which everyone knows that is like prime real estate if you are in agriculture, especially with like probably the water rights and being grandfathered in and like whatever is going on there. So I think that made like huge headlines too when they bought that that property there. Yeah, they own a property in England, Canada, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, and Australia were some. The Mexico one didn't surprise me. There's like some larger uh, Mormon communities down in Mexico. Um, but some of the other ones were kind of surprising. So talking about it being in their investment, the Mormon church could be worth as much as $1 trillion dollars in the next 20 years. So I think there's definitely investment strategy in what they're doing and where they're buying land. Oh, 100%. Um, The last thing I'll add, which I think is important, um, because I feel like I have been kind of defending the church. <laughs> I have no ties to the Mormon church. I know. Fact, I'm like, maybe <laughs> do we not know something about Natalie? Like it is how you are like you're <laughs> representing the Mormon church. I am um, unintentionally. But when I was first dating Luke, uh, we are both Catholic. We were both raised, um, you know, practicing families. So like very, you know, not strict Catholic, but definitely like um, we weren't just attending on Easter and Christmas. You know, we were very practicing families. And I think I had maybe known that about Luke before he had realized that about me, because I remember him asking like, I think I was actually driving to church and he's, I was like, I got to get off the phone so I'm going to, you know, be at church or whatever. And he's like, oh, you know, what religion are you? And I said, Mormon. And I shit you not for probably a solid like 10 seconds. Like it was awkward. Like I just let that pause linger. He didn't say anything and like not nothing against the Mormon religion. My husband doesn't have anything against it. Um, I definitely think it was just important to both of us that we married like within our own faith or someone that like aligned with us. But when I said, oh, I'm just joking, I'm Catholic, he was like, oh, oh my gosh, thank you. Like, I'm so relieved. Like, I think he was like, oh my gosh, am I going to marry a Mormon or am I going to break up with this Mormon? But one point that I think really needs to be considered is when, you know, the Mormon church does come in and buy, let's say, again, like this Nebraska farmland that affects the community there. A lot of people will, again, kind of come to their defense and say, well, they give money back to the community um, or they're involved in the community. And to their point, they do. Like I have I have facts and I have seen that, you know, firsthand just, again, from being friends with someone in the Nebraska operation. But I will say it's a little, I think one of my concerns is that it shifts people in those communities from being owners to employees. And I think that can definitely restructure or affect rural America. And I don't know if that's kind of viewpoint is talked about enough is that like, yes, they are, you know, hiring maybe local people or giving back to the local community. At the end of the day, they're employees. And I think that's a really big difference. I don't know if you said this already. I'm sorry. I kind of, when you were telling your Mormon story, I was going to tell a story about someone that I was dating that ended up being a Jehovah Witness, but I decided not to. So I wasn't totally paying attention. <laughs> so I'm really sorry. The episode that Luke was on, he literally talked about that, that like that is a concern he has about people moving from being owner operator, like the rancher to an employee and how that like shifts dynamics. Um, So it's really funny that you mm-hmm. brought that up too. Great minds. You and Luke. Not really funny. I'm sure he swayed me. <laughs> I'm sure I've heard him talk about it. You're like, oh, yeah, that's where I heard that. Now I remember. Isn't that unconfirmation bias or something like that, where like you hear something so repetitively that it like becomes your own thought? Mm-hmm. It's an intelligent thought, though. So it's like positive confirmation it's, it's bias, confirmation I guess. Confirmation bias. Thanks, Luke, for that. All right. Well, that's all we have for you guys today. Thanks for joining us on this Thursday, and we will see you guys next week. 
been a 58 Ember production. For more shows, please visit the 58 Ember channel, 58ember.com, or find us at 58 Ember Media on socials.